CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Suzanne Jackson has lived a creative life. She's known for her visual art, but is also a poet, dancer, writer, radio host, and has a master's in theatrical set design from Yale. Telfair Museums in Savannah is mounting a 50-year retrospective of this Renaissance woman called Suzanne Jackson, five decades beginning this Friday. If you're near the coast, you can meet Suzanne and view her work at the Jepson Center tomorrow. She joins me now from GBB Savannah to talk about her first full career retrospective. Hello, Suzanne. Good morning. How are you? Very well. Happy to speak with you. And what a career you've had. You and your curator, Rachel Reese, have been collecting and preparing for the show for, I guess, about two and a half years. What's it like to revisit work way back from the beginning of your career? It's been quite wonderful because, uh, first of all, Rachel Reese was the new uh, contemporary a curator at the Telfair, and she's one of the first to actually visit studios of artists in the Savannah area and actually all around the state of Georgia. And it's really helped to uh, energize many of the artists in the city. So my retrospective, as far as I'm concerned, is uh, an exhibition showing my work and life work uh, for almost 60 years of my life. But for me, it also is a way for the artist in Savannah to be recognized. Um, it's, you know, when you're as an artist, I think it's really important to share uh, what you do with other artists and with the public. Um, and also, uh, Rachel assembled uh, three most incredible interns last summer. Uh, Treasure Flavors from Spelman College, who's a curatorial uh, intern, and uh, Donna Malaver from uh, Parsons, who is a photography student, and Anna Landau-Smith received her MFA in art history. So these three interns dug into all of my records and things that I, you know, saved in the studio and pulled up all kinds of photos, family photos and writings, and even went through some of my journals um, to look through and find uh, references. One of the important things about this that they've all worked really hard for, and I have also three um, young African-American art historians who are writing for the catalog, and we have an introduction by Betty Saar, who's a well-known artist. Yes, and a great longtime artist. friend. Mm-hmm. So Betty has written the introduction for the catalog. Uh, one of the things that we've tried to do is to straighten out many of the misconceptions or the from one journal to the next things are written that are just a little bit off, and then people tend to to copy those mistakes. Well, well let, me, even, let me stop you there, because you know yeah. that's the thing. When you're looking at a whole life retrospective, there's one thing. There's the record of the work, the official record, yes. and then there's your memory and your experience of that. And I'd love that's to know right. a little bit about that, because you know, you're known as a collage artist. You do these sort of paintings. You do these kind of of-the-moment looking at things, putting them together. But let's let's talk about a little bit about the collage of your life, if you will. All right. But my work is not collage. This is well, I'm a good, painter. good. Tell me, tell me. That's part of the corrections because mm-hmm. my I'm not a collage artist. I my work is I'm a painter, and 
I work, I've worked with acrylic paint since the beginning, since the early 60s when acrylic was being introduced. And throughout those years, acrylic paint has also developed as the mediums have uh, been developed by the paint companies, the, you know, the best paint companies. So I've experimented uh, with papers on canvas, for, starting first on canvas, when there was gesso only as a medium to prime the uh, canvas, but I was also using the whites of the gessos, uh, experimenting with the variations of kinds of whites. My work over the uh, years moving from place to place and having supplies or not having supplies, and then finally having a really good studio space in Savannah, I've been able to experiment with layering. My work is always layered almost in the sense of um, old master's technique of oil painting layering, but also in the watercolor um, medium of uh, layering, layering washes and uh, and layers of paint. So I work that way in acrylic. And the works are layers of paint on top of one another. And now the works, the newest works, are actually um, using acrylic paint as the surface. So paint on paint, which is not collage. It's not right. the same. My work is um, kind of assembled work uh, in the sense of uh, layering uh, it started with layering papers and then layering, adding fabrics. I also uh, try not to dispose of paint uh, down the drain, so mm. I, I save all the residue and I pull up even the paint from my hands. I put back into the paintings for texture. So the works that are that I've been known for. Actually, people have been showing the same works for that are forty years old, and the newest works that. Uh, and also in 2019, I worked up to the moment of our installing the <laughs> exhibition, are uh, really going to surprise people because they've been looking in publications of my work uh, for all these years of uh, work from the past. Yes, and so, so that's the thing. When you're looking at a large career retrospective, obviously things evolve. Your life evolves, your sense of self evolves, your visions of the world evolve. want to let listeners know that I'm speaking with Suzanne Jackson when we're, we're reflecting on her work spanning more than five decades. Tailfair Museums in Savannah will exhibit a 50-year retrospective of her work. It's called Suzanne Jackson, Five Decades. But for our radio audience who can't actually see, I'd love to just ask you some parts of your life um, mm -hmm. about you know what you've done. There, let, let's say the layers, the layers of your life. Um, you graduated from San Francisco State University, moved around a lot as a kid. You were in St. Louis, what uh, San Francisco, uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. Then you moved to L.A. in the 1960s, but you've, you'd already toured with a modern dance company, so living a really creative life. This was when racial tensions were at a super high pitch. You know, we think Watts riots in 1965. You opened a Gallery, Gallery 32 in L.A., 1968. So what inspired you to open a gallery? Actually, I was a ballet dancer, and I toured with Music Theater USA. Uh, from It started, it began with uh, Sacramento Music, Music Circus. And from California, and this is, these are the things, the nuances that I've understood, because this is also a generational understanding of time and how people approach uh, the past, and so this is the reason I'm happy to have a younger uh, group working with mm -hmm. this on this exhibition, because uh, I toured, and we toured from California, you tour through Mexico, South America, and then back to the States, and while I was in 
Latin South America. I saw the differences of, well, first of all, when we stopped in um, Venezuela, Caracas, there was a television team with black technicians and cameramen. We didn't have that in the States in the 1960s. And coming back to the United States, uh, having left San Francisco and the whole uh, Vietnam War was happening then, the uh, human being, I arrived in San Francisco just in time for that. Then I moved to Los Angeles, and there was the big love-in. And I lived in Echo Park, and uh, the studio spaces or the places where I had studio were sold or rented, and I was looking for a new space. And I found this beautiful building, the Granada Buildings, that reminded me of the La Alhambra Hotel in Montevideo. And I thought, I've got to have that space for a studio. So I was not planning a gallery. I was looking for studio space. That's what I understood that I was supposed to do as a painter. And also living in Los Angeles, the distance was so great to get to ballet class that um, my emphasis was always to become a painter and It's just something that, you know, I knew that I wanted to do. Well, as a result, uh, someone had told me that I should take class from Charles White. Oh, the great Charles, uh, the great painter Charles White. I mean, there have been Momo retrospectives of his work. He's a very important artist. Well, I was there in New York for his retrospective. For 50 years, we actually attempted to, we were trying to uh, have a retrospective of Charles White's work. So during this whole period, while I had um, what my studio space became, Gallery 32, because David Hammonds and I were both in Charles White's class, and Alonzo Davis, a number of artists were in his class. And when David Hammonds saw the studio space that I had, he said, oh, you should make this a gallery. You should let us have a show. And uh, I actually ended up uh, inviting some a friend from college and some other artists. Timothy Washington was one of the first artists to have an exhibition. And then the word of mouth and people would come in with work, and we just worked as a kind of a free group of artists just putting on, using the space and having exhibitions. And one of the exhibitions that I suppose has become very well known was Emery Douglas, who was the artist for the Black Panther Party. That exhibition was actually for the children's breakfast program Mm -hmm. and for the to free prisoners. And we did an exhibition of works by the students, the children at the Watts Towers Art Center, and then also some fundraisers for the Black Arts Council. So basically, we were... Um, there were we were the artists who weren't being shown by the uh, at that time supposedly establishment right. of artists, right. and now almost all of us will we've been, we've been in the exhibition um, that uh, that started at the Tate called Soul of a Nation. Uh, Art in the Age of Black Power. That exhibition started at the Tate Museum in London. It went to Crystal Bridges, and then it was at the Brooklyn Brooklyn Museum, and now it's at the Broad in Los Angeles. The Charles White retrospective uh, started in Chicago, went to MoMA, New York, and then it is in Los Angeles. And then along with that exhibition is an exhibition called Life Model Charles White and His Students. So there are 40 of us in that exhibition, which was like a reunion. And what I did not realize was that Charles White had started uh, teaching at Otis Art Institute in 1965. So I had already graduated from San Francisco State with a BA in painting and toured South America. And I guess I was one of the early students, um, African-American students, who was in his class in 1968. 
and David Hammonds in the class. So, and I discovered later the other students, uh, African American students especially, and many others. Actually, the wonderful thing about his classes was that everybody in Los Angeles was alerted that this wonderful teacher was at uh, Otis Art Institute. So I didn't realize at the time that I was one of the early students in his class, and others uh, actually took his classes in the 70s because they were already registered at other universities. So we're actually really proud to be students of Charles White. But also I reread, people were saying I was influenced by his, um, you know, his uh, mentorship and social um, activities and community responsibility, but I was reading through some of the research that was done on my life, I attended Monroe High School. I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. Let me just tell you, Suzanne, we just have half a minute left for you okay. to wrap up. I'm, I'm so sorry. Okay. Obviously, you have a whole life worth of work <laughs> I know. and so many people that you've worked with. And of course, people can see a lot of that on display at yeah. the Telfair Museum. But before you leave, you know, obviously visual arts, your first love, but I want to know which gift could you not live without? Visual arts, theater, costume design, dance, poetry, writing, radio? I will always be a painter, and I will, be, I will always be a visual artist. And I really invite everyone to come to see the exhibition. The, um, all the team that's worked on the show has been quite incredible, and it will be a surprise for many people uh, who will be able to see the history of my life as well, and that relates to the work and the progression of that work from six through 60 years all the way uh, to my first paintings when I was a little girl. And like a great artist, giving yeah. credit to other people too. That's wonderful. Yeah. Suzanne Jackson, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for allowing me to share this. Thank Suzanne you. Jackson, a woman of many talents. Her work is going to be at the Telfair Museums in Savannah from June 28th until October 13th. It's called Suzanne Jackson Five Decades. And if you are in Savannah tonight, you can meet her at the opening program and reception for the retrospective. Details at gpbnews.org. Coming up, a conversation with one of our own, Rosser Shemansky, soon-to-be retiree and former drag queen. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Lily and Madeline. Is it pain or pleasure? I'm dazed and confused. The folk pop duo has another tour coming up, with shows in the South and West on the books promoting their fourth album called Canterbury Girls. Lily and Madeline blend their voices so fluidly, it almost sounds like they were born to sing in harmony which they may have been. The two aren't just musical partners, they're also sisters. Lily and Madeline Jerkowitz stopped by on Second Thought during their tour earlier this year. Thank you so much, Lily and Madeline Jerkowitz, and welcome. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. Well, thanks for being here. We're gonna start with Lily, you're 22, Madeline 24, and this is already your fourth album. Were you sprung from the womb singing together? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I mean, our mom is very musical and we sang around the house with her like ever since we were little. We started taking piano lessons when we were like eight years old, I want to say. Um, and yeah, we started making music when I was 15 and she was 17. Wow. So when, how about writing it? Did you start writing or were you just doing covers of other people's music at that time? We would write little jingles and silly songs and stuff as we were growing up, but nothing serious until we started doing some covers. And then we were challenged to write our own music uh, by a producer who found us. 
And uh, that was the first time, really, that I thought of writing songs seriously. Well, let's talk about how that producer found you. You, uh, a video basically went viral of this song, In the Middle. It was posted on YouTube. Let's listen to what people heard. All of the years I have spent here It was a producer from Sufjan Stevens' label that actually heard that, and you started working with them. Remarkable to listen to those lyrics about living in the middle and never wandering. Now, you were two teenagers living in Indiana at the time, so in the middle, right? Yeah, it makes sense, right? So now you've toured the country and overseas. What did you think when the label first contacted you? Um, I feel like I didn't really have like a, a grasp of what it meant because I was... I don't know. It's hard to explain. But like when you have no knowledge of like how these things work, um, you either assume that it's a way bigger deal than it is or you think that it's like nothing, you know. So I would think I was more on like the nothing end. Um, But I mean, I was just excited that we had such a positive reception to our music. Um, It's weird to hear that clip because like our voices are so different now. Like I think I sound like a child. But um, (laughs) yeah, no, I mean, I was just excited to continue writing and performing. That's Lily. How about you, Madeline? I agree. I think that um, we just saw music as a hobby for the most part. So when Asthmatic Kitty um, approached us and said, we'll re-release your EP and give you some money for another record, I thought, you know, this is too good to be true. This is incredible. Well, so you put this out on the Internet. Obviously, you wanted something to happen. But were you ambitious teens? Did you, you know, always think that making it is the plan? I think I'm really ambitious now, but I think up until this point, I've just tried to like be grateful for each thing that we got to do, you know? Mm. Yeah, I agree. Well, Canterbury Girls, this is the first album that you've recorded outside of your home state of Indiana. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's correct. So this time you went to Nashville and you worked with Daniel Tashian and Ian Fitchuk. And these are the same producers who worked with Casey Musgraves on Golden Hour, which just won the album of the year at the Grammys. First of all, why did you decide to move from Indiana? I think there was a stop in New York in the middle of that, too. I'm not sure. That's yeah, right. We um, we moved to New York uh, two Januarys ago, so January 2018. Um, and we didn't really have any plans to make the album yet. And then it came together really fast. And we were like, okay, we're going to do it in Nashville with these two guys. It's going to be 10 days. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was it, basically. 10 days. That's really fast. So you were pretty well, pre- you had all your songs ready when you went into the studio? Yeah, we've been writing it for about two years. And before we went into the studio, we like made a Spotify playlist of, you know, reference tracks for each song that we were going to record. And we were like, you know, very on top of it. So when you do something like that, are you listening to other artists and kind of trying to get influences or things going through your head, I guess? Absolutely. There's so much that goes through your head when you're preparing to record a record. Like Lily said, we created a playlist of reference tracks and songs that we wanted to emulate the sound of in the studio. Um, You know, we would pull ideas for different percussion elements or different synth sounds or vocal effects. Um, so it, it requires a lot of preparation, especially if you need to do it in 10 days. Who were you? Who was on that playlist? What were you listening to? Um, there was lots of waltzes. Um, we had Feist. We had uh, Nancy Wilson. Amy and, Winehouse. Yeah, Amy Winehouse. Mostly uh, female vocalists. Mm-hmm. So this, to me, listening to some of your old tunes, and I went back and listened to saw some of your performances, 
This is a little less of that spare acoustic sound of, you know, just the two of you. I know you travel with a, what, a drummer generally and yeah. a bass player or cellist. But it, this sounds a lot more, I guess, lush, right? Um, do you feel that way? Well, first, thank you. And, and yes, I do. I do think that this record is much more full than our previous work. And I love it that way. Well, so uh, you were in this new place, new producers, recorded pretty quickly. What did that feel like for you? What was that experience? I was just grateful that it was finally coming together because we'd been writing it for two years. And it just it felt to me like it took so long to finally get into the studio. Um but also, like, because we only had 10 days, we kind of just went with our gut instinct for all the tracks. And I think that that was really beneficial. Mm-hmm. Well, here's some more of that music that was created in Nashville. This is the first single off the album. It's called Self Care. interesting because self-care is associated with, you know, um, taking care of one's mind and body. But you're actually saying here, I can't make myself care. Madeline, what's the story behind that? Yeah, it's kind of a play on words a little bit. I think Lily wrote that line. Um, Yeah, I I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. Yeah, go ahead. You can do that. You're sisters. (laughs) I started the song um, and it was about Madeline. It was sort of like a diss track because she's really, she's really obsessed with like, you know, face masks and like getting her eight hours of sleep and like, you know, all that stuff. I I know it's great. But, um, so she was like having like a a down moment where she was like really obsessed with that stuff. And it was because she was in a super unhealthy relationship with this guy. And like, obviously what she needed to do was eliminate that from her life. So I sort of wrote the song, like trying to tell her, like, I don't know what you're doing here, but you need to get rid of this guy. And then she wrote the second half kind of with me on that but she's still she was still dating him so I don't think she really like I don't know it was like my head hadn't caught up with my heart like deep down I knew like subconsciously yeah yeah, I knew what I needed to eliminate from my life in order to actually have some self-care and to take care of myself but I wasn't quite there yet so that's where the song came from this is the human story right we know exactly what we should do and walk the other way yeah, yeah. at times, <laughs> at times. But that's interesting. Is this a way that you often communicate with each other through songs? You know, you've got a sort of, uh, uh, Lily, you were describing this as like a message to Madeline. Yeah, I think for me, songwriting is like, you know, processing my own feelings and, and like, you know, co- kind of like journaling um, and also like telling Madeline about where I am in life, you know, when we share songs. Mm-hmm. Are those things that you are more difficult to articulate when you're just sitting there talking with each other or sitting on the tour bus or whatever? Sometimes. I do think that songwriting creates this this element, kind of like a, a layer uh, where you can be vulnerable, but you can also be poetic and put it in a way where you can kind of guard your heart a little bit more. Yeah, it's like a safe place. Yeah. yeah. I'm speaking with Lily and Madeline, the acoustic folk duo, um, often described as the ethereal acoustic folk duo, and are with us today. Well, you know, your songs, you also sound so close together. Your harmonies are so close together. Um, 
Of course, human voices, they're all different, right? The face, the fingerprint. But people who are related often look alike. Do you think you as sisters sound alike? I think that we're good at, like, locking into the same note in unison. Um, and harmony has always come naturally to us. But I think that when we sing separately, our voices are, are very different. Have you ever thought about, I mean, even when you were younger, did you think, I'm going to be a solo artist? Or was it always, we're going to do this together? I think it was important for us to start together because we support each other so well and we work together so well, both as like business partners and as creative partners. We have considered um, like solo projects in the future, but now's not the time, I think, because we're just working really well together at this moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that would be a terrible behind the music episode when the two (laughs) sisters split (laughs) split apart. You do spend a lot of time together making music and touring. You just moved And some people look at, you know, your late teens and your 20s. These are your formative years. So how, as sisters, do you establish distinct identities or as musicians? Well, we are very different and we do spend a lot of time apart. We have different friends and uh, we like different things. Lily, what do you think? Um, I mean... Yeah, I think that's kind of the struggle with touring sometimes. You know, you you don't have any free time to, to be an individual. It's all mm-hmm. about getting to the venue, doing what's best for the four of you in the van, you know. Um, but, yeah, I think I think that um, working together is, is for the best. But also, yeah, we've been thinking about that lately. Like, you know, I, I've been doing this since high school, and I haven't really created any other sort of identity aside from making music. Mm-hmm. Well, let's listen to another song from the album. This one is called Analog Love. So analog as opposed to digital? Sure, I suppose. Yeah, just like kind of a retro vibe we wanted that song to have. Is that something that you, you know, you're both young women out on the road. You were talking about a relationship before. What is that like being able to sort of navigate a, a personal life, even, you know, just your friendships? How do you stay in touch with people? How do you connect? I think that's a big theme on this album, that song specifically, um, because, you know, we're on tour a lot or we're recording out of town a lot. And, you know, you're FaceTiming and you're texting all the time. You're Snapchatting and sharing memes and all that stuff. And that's all great. And I'm so you know grateful that I get to continue to maintain that contact with the person that I want to talk to. But also, like, it's just not the same mm. as as being with somebody like face to face in person. Um, and, yeah, I mean, speaking for myself, a lot, I would say pretty much all of my relationships have suffered, you know, friendship or romantic because of what I do and because I started doing it so young. And I think that it's worth the sacrifice. And I think that um, I need to just accept that sometimes. But mm. also, yeah, I, I wish that people, you know, were more understanding sometimes. L- that's Lily. Yeah. How about you, Madeline? Do you have thoughts on that? Um, I agree. I, I can't really imagine it any other way, though. That's I feel true. like we've just been traveling so much for the past five to six years. And um, it's true that um, all of my relationships have become long distance at some point. But sometimes a long distance relationship can make it stronger, I think, uh, to be apart. Um, what is it? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing all the time, but we definitely wanted to write this song um, and capture this feeling of 
just being with someone face to face. Yeah. So what is it like? I mean, you used to do pretty, um, you know, acoustic Americana-y kind of sets. Now with this new record, it has a lot of different layers. What does that feel like to perform live? It's so fun. It's so different. And each night is totally different with each like different sound system we use um, in each venue. It's really fun because we even have like electronic drums this time, which is really cool. Lots of different tech stuff that we're using on stage. And it just has such a full sound. And so it's really fun to be able to kind of rock out on stage each night. (laughs) Another side of Lily and Madeline. But, you know, a lot of young people who become well-known in their late teens or early 20s, they don't know how to handle fame. It's a tough thing. What, what, what grounds you? How are you keeping yourself from all of those pitfalls? Well, I would say we are certainly not famous now, and I doubt that we will ever be. You're well on your way. We're, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but I don't know. We have a great family. You know, our, our, our parents have always been very supportive and I think also doing a lot of the work ourselves, we like, you know, have advanced this whole tour. We're doing all the driving. I think that being really hands on in the whole process, like keeps you humble because like it is a lot of work. Yeah. Let's get to one more song while you're here with us. This is Go. Now it's 2 a.m. And I'm thinking about the things that I was scared to show. said I wouldn't leave so easy But I know you wanna see me go I've lost track So you two constantly on the go. All right, that was Madeline Jerkowitz and her sister Lily. Lily and Madeline together, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. If the sky was falling over Lily Jerkowitz there together. She and her sister Madeline are the folk pop duo Lily and Madeline. They're going back on tour this fall. Their fourth album is called Canterbury Girls. Are you a fan of Lily and Madeline? Tell us why you love their story or their music. You can join the conversation on our Facebook group, GBB Radio's On Second Thought. You can also reach us on Twitter at OST Talk. Email us on second thought at gbb.org or leave us a message at 404 500 9457. And thanks to Mo's comment on Twitter about our show last Friday. She writes, Last thing I heard on my way to work was T.I.'s Rubber Band Man for the Georgia music playlist they're doing. Thank you so much, OST Talk, for blessing me with Friday energy. And our conversation for World Refugee Day also sparked some Facebook discussion. Rebecca wrote, I caught only a little bit of this program, but it was wonderful that you highlight a place in Georgia that welcomes refugees and sees the benefits of that diversity in the community. And we thank you for being part of the On Second Thought community, both as listeners and on social media, where it's easy to join us. Leave your comments for us, and maybe we'll read that on the air. GPB is losing a legend this week. Rosser Shemansky is retiring. What we're going to hear about is not-so-secret life as a drag queen who used to be on TV with RuPaul. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. 
My next guest has played a critical role on almost everything you've watched on GPB TV over the past three decades. Production manager Rosser Shemansky retires Friday after 31 years with Georgia Public Broadcasting. He began his career as a receptionist, answering the phones, a more critical part of operations back then, and concludes this week with his final Hawaiian shirt Friday. That is a tradition that has become a mainstay here, just like Rosser himself. Although he spent a lot of time behind the camera, at GPB, he is no stranger to the spotlight as a star. Fighting crime from the country that brought her up out of that mine. Buddy. Star booty, the motion picture star in RuPaul. RuPaul is star booty. Star booty, star booty, star booty, yay! Star booty! And that is the star drag queen featured in various incarnations on People TV. That's a public access channel from 1987 to 2004. We're going to hear a lot more about Rosser's wide-ranging career as he joins me in the studio. Hello and welcome. Hey, Virginia. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) What were we just listening to? That was Deandra Peake singing the uh, star booty theme song. Singing being a loose term in this case. Right. Deandra comes from a long line of sorry sisters uh, pushed out on the stage by their meemaw. Mm-hmm. And um, in the kind of the tradition of the, if you ever recall the group, the Shags from the 60s. From New Hampshire. The Shags are a complete cult sensation. You know, they did one album, their three sisters, basically their father pushed them into it. The, it's the worst music you can possibly imagine. Here's just a little taste of that. Meet the Shags is the name of the record. They were sort of like an inspiration for the Peak Sisters and uh, and were created well before I came along on the Public Access show. When I came along, they already existed as a family. And so we actually had people who wrote in who wanted to be members of the fan club from fans who were just like so complimentary and just got such fun joy out of the stupid stuff that we did. Well, I have to say, you know, watching some of the old footage, there are you know, backdrops that are basically painted sheets of plastic. And it's it's so funny watching this level of production. Sometimes they're falling down in the back and people are holding them up. As it, from someone like you, who I know as a professional behind the camera who's making sure that everything's straight and you're looking in the right place and your hair is just right and your lavalier mic is plugged in properly. Did you have to let go of all of that? I had a lot to let go, but of course that was still in the beginning of my career here because uh, I didn't actually get here until 1988. So Deandra had already been created. Did people at GPB know? I came in the door busting it wide open, telling everybody everything I was up to. And back in those days, this was when RuPaul was kind of famous in Atlanta. And of course, he was affiliated with our show. I would clip out little bits from the paper and say, here's my friend RuPaul. Look, he's going to be famous. Look, he's going to be famous. And people were like, "Okay, right. Yeah, sure. You know, and stuff. But we all knew that he was going to be famous. Well, and and look where he's gone. And that's an interesting thing that as lucrative, popular, mainstream entertainment. Drag is it. You know, shows like Pose and like RuPaul's Drag Race, certainly, and and a new talk show for RuPaul. But I'm wondering about the scene at that time. I mean, we're talking about the late 80s through the 90s. 
AIDS HIV crisis was in full blown at that time. What was it like to be in this, you know, dressing up in big wigs and putting your your big stroke of eyeshadow on at that time? It was liberating. We were all scared out of our minds, you know, because of this disease that we didn't really know anything about and that a certain president basically was ignoring. And so as a consequence, hundreds of thousands of people died for no reason other than the fact that they were basically ignored. Mm. And it reflected a lot in my personal life. Let's just say I was celibate for like seven years because I was scared out of my mind, you know. And I have to say that a show like Pose is doing such a dynamic presentation of how things were back then. You see the fear in their faces and then you see them go to the ball and the joy that they give in their performances at the ball was kind of what would happen with us as well at that time. We would do our shows on TV and then we would go and do lots of stuff at clubs and everything. So we were constantly busy doing stuff all over the place. And we did what we could do back then in any way we could do it. Um, I participated with uh, ACT UP on a lot of things. Um, There was another group out called Queer Nation. And uh, they were the they were one of the leaders in the protests against Cracker Barrel back then. If you remember, Cracker Barrel had some discriminatory policies against, um, you know, people of color and lesbian and gay people. And so uh, I went on the back of a trailer out to Cracker Barrels in Winder and stuff like that and sang songs out in the parking lot to protest that sort of thing. Well, I should note we should note that. there has been a lot of academic studies, social studies, and otherwise on President Reagan and the Reagan administration's response to HIV and AIDS, certainly. So you would not be the first person to call out that kind of criticism. But it was also the the dawn of an era of activism, certainly uh, bringing gay culture that mu- and gay activism, the movement, that much further than it had been in Stonewall. Since you mentioned Billy Porter's pose, let's hear just a little clip of that to get a sense of what you're talking about. Y'all are whistling past the graveyard. Really? Your T-cells have fallen below 200. I'm going to have to move your diagnosis of being HIV positive to having AIDS. We are dying, and it's time that we fight. I'm not posing for a mugshot. It's heartbreaking to hear these narratives and and to read about them, Um, never mind if you lived through them, but a lot of young people have not. So uh, this is something I talked about with Mr. Floyd, that so many young people who didn't live through the crisis or the peak of the crisis, let's say, sorry to use peak (laughs) uh, in the wrong way, uh, of the crisis didn't experience. So is there, if you met someone new and said, like, this is the gay media you need to look at. This This is the LGBTQ focused kind of things that are essential to understanding the movement. I hate to advertise something on another network, but again, I'll say, watch Pose. It is probably the most important program out now that can educate you on how things were back in in those times, you know, and how scary it was, and, and how we all were determined to survive, and how we were all determined to help each other survive through that period of time, and how we were also determined that we were going to deliver that message of our survival to everyone out there, including politicians who were going to be able to create legislation that would would help us become real people and not just a side segment, you know, that 
oh gosh, we can really ignore this because they don't actually have a voice now. And the greatest thing that I see now coming out on television is um, advertisements that just with no statement at all just show gay couples with kids, uh, buying cars, on vacations. It's just so great to see that kind of stuff and, and just see that people these days are just being shown the, that sort of stuff as though it is a real part of life, which it is. I'm speaking with GPB production manager Rosser Shemansky. He retires Friday after 31 years with GPB. Well, you may not know him from behind the camera, but you may know him from, from in front of the camera. He was a big drag star, Deandra Peak, one of the Peak sisters on a number of cable access shows on People TV in Atlanta. Um, you embraced the video age when videos came out. Um, did you ever dream of, you know, doing a crossover when you were working at GPB, perhaps? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, actually, I did appear on a GPTV show back in the day. Uh, Georgia Public Television is what we were called for the longest time until about 10, 12 years ago when we officially switched over to Georgia Public Broadcasting. But yes, uh, we had a show called Tangents. It was hosted by Gerald Bryant. And Gerald brought Deandra on as if Deandra was a real person. I went to work as myself in the morning. I went home, got my stuff, came back dressed up at the station and went on this TV show and he interviewed me as if I was a real person, which was exactly how Deandra was as a character. She was a real person, not played by anybody. All the media interviews I ever did, it was always as Deandra and no mention of me as a person behind that scene. Uh-huh. Which is interesting because for two reasons. I I look at the old footage and she's very sweet. You know, she's not the sharpest knife at the picnic, let's just say. But, <laughs> right. but 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 not, you know, sharper arch or, you know, sort of cocked eyebrow, sassy, hands on hips kind of drag queen. She um evolved in that way because the Peak Sisters originally were uh, a bunch of crazy bitchy um complainers, you know. All they did was complain about the fact that they they ain't got no red carpet, they ain't got no uh, you know, whatever. Uh, the producers supposedly promised them uh, throughout the whatever the concert was or whatever that whatever it was they were promised all kinds of stuff, and they never got it. And so um, what I what I did with Deandra was uh, she first started out emulating that, and then I said, well, you know what, um, that's not the kind of character that I really want to be. Let me stick out a little bit and be a little bit different. And she just kind of evolved into like this kind of a sweet little thing that just uh, loved everybody. And it, it it worked out really good for me. And, and I guess I have to ask you about your Hawaiian shirt Fridays. People used to do Hawaiian shirts here. We kind of lost it for a little while. I sort of snatched onto it. And, you know, I'm kind of the king slash queen of quirk. And Hawaiian shirt Friday is one of the quirks and perks that we get around here because we can be you know, creative and goofy at the same time while producing wonderful quality television and radio for and media for all of our listeners and viewers and stuff out there. So the thing is, is you just got to have fun. We have a serious job to do, but gosh, let's have fun while we do it, you know. And uh, and so I think that I I try to instill that spirit of fun in, in everybody and you, know, you pull pranks on people all day long and stuff. We'll really miss that. Even <laughs> pranks and all here at GPB. I have to say we will miss you just terribly. What will you miss the most about working here? Television is such a fun business to work in. And, and there's a great camaraderie 
between media folks, uh, television and, and radio type people. Uh, there's a, a great spirit of we've got to help each other. We've got to get along. We've got to create. And, uh, and that's kind of the spirit that I've always felt here. So you, as Deandra Peak had, you know, layered with makeup and wigs and that kind of thing. So it's not as if people recognized you. Or did they ever? Did people ever recognize you? Well, I'll tell you, I've been recognized many times outside of drag. It's interesting to me that people can actually recognize me. And I think mainly it comes from my voice. And I have to tell you, this fun, This is really funny, but um, the very first time I was on the American Music Show in 1983, I went to Malone's Bookstore right next to the Plaza Theater on Ponce. It was the very next day, and I'd made my very first appearance on the American Music Show. I'm buying a book up at the counter, and the girl at the counter checking me out says, oh, I saw you on TV last <laughs> night. The very first experience I had, and she's seen me on TV. That hooked me. Right a lot there. of people chase that feeling their whole life of mm -hmm. performance. Mm -hmm. Did you? You know, I've always been a goofball. So yeah, I've always kind of been a performer. Um, but I, I, I never dreamed it would turn into what it did. Well, there is a whole community of people who came to know this character and so many other things that were on people TV. But how can they find it now? Actually, uh, right now, the American Music Show is uh, part of the Rose Library at Emory University. A gentleman named Andy Ditzler over there has been absolutely wonderful and has uh, taken all 700 tapes of the American Music Show that exist uh, from 25 years of public access. And they are digitally entering all of that into the Rose Library's collection of stuff. And then uh, just about, I, I guess it was about a month ago or something like that, they had a uh, another retrospective at the High Museum. And so we got to go to the High Museum, and we thought it was just going to be a, a showing. And then it turns out right before the thing, Andy comes up to us and says, um, there's going to be Q&A after this. Would you all like to answer some questions? And it was an hour and a half of Q&A. No after kidding. The, after the uh, screening. And so we apparently were pioneers in what we were doing because nobody else was being as out and open as we were. And we didn't intend on our show to be a gay show. Dick Richards did not produce the American Music Show as a gay show. It just happened that so much of our focus was on people we knew in the gay community who were entertainers and doing stuff. And, and that was where the fun was. So that's why we went out. And Emory University is doing such a great thing by preserving all of this and uh, putting it into their digital library. And I actually have about 150 DeAndre tapes that once I retire, I'm going to be giving to them as well. So the greatest thing is being affiliated with a, a University of Emory stature. I mean, that's the, you know, the Rose Library is a 10 stories tall structure You've, on their campus. It's huge. You really came up in the world from being a gator. <laughs> <laughs> right, I know. And, and I try to tell people don't hold that against me, you know. <laughs> I'm curious about in that hour and a half long Q&A, what, what was the most striking question to you? You know, well, one of the things that we make so much fun of are uh, those of us involved with the show are the questions in which people say, wow, what was the existential reason that you did this or that or the, you know, what was the overriding 
purpose. And I'm like, well, we all got kind of drunk, and uh, we just decided to go ahead and do that. It wasn't like we were really saying— This wasn't a broad philosophical perspective that you were going for. Not for the most part. We were all about uh, just having a good time, maybe pointing out some foibles uh, that we have with our government and our society today, Um, but having a fun time doing it. And I, I often figure this. I think you get a message across so much better if you're kind while you're delivering it rather than if you're this big, angry mob. I think that was one of the successes of the American Music Show and DeAndra Show was that the, the whatever the messages were that we were delivering, we were having fun doing it. And it caused people to pay attention. So, you know, it worked. How would DeAndra Peak say goodbye to her audience? She'd say, y'all... I'll tell you what, get yourself some Viener sausages and go out there and make you a recipe and have yourselves a great summer and just enjoy life, y'all. Yay! (laughs) GPB's production manager, Rosser Shemansky. His title for today, anyway, this week, after Friday, he will be Rosser Shemansky, retiree. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Virginia. Great being here. Love y'all. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.